Hey there, before we get started, just a little disclaimer. The following episode is going to be based on a topic that some people may find a little sensitive. That is black history, faith communities, non-belief, and the way those things all play on each other. With that said, we welcome you. But if you feel like you may want to put this off for another time when you're ready to go down that rabbit hole, this is a good time to put it in the saved folder and come back whenever you're ready. Otherwise, let's go. What do the Pope, the Puritans, and Pastor Paula White have in common? In this episode, we explore the hows and the whys that make religion and politics a match not quite made in heaven. On today's episode, Christian nationalism and the Black, Latino, and African Christians allied with American white evangelicalism, whether they realize it or not. Free thought, story, gender, politics, blackness, education, doubt, critique, science, achievement, engineering, Africa, America, <laughs> and more For every enemy that is aligned against you, let there be that we would strike the ground for you will give us victory, God. I hear a sound of abundance of rain. I hear a sound of victory. I hear a sound of... That's Evangelist Paula White, multimillionaires, Southern white evangelical preacher, spiritual advisor to the former president of the United States and leader of the City of Destiny, a non-denominational church. And if you didn't know, non-denominational means cool and progressive. If you were around November of 2020, you saw this clip of her making her heartfelt prayer, the most heartfelt prayer she's ever prayed. And on election night, not only was her theology on the line, but so was money, so was prestige, so was her access to a certain son of a Klansman turned president, access to his government. Her angels have even been dispatched from Africa right now. Africa right now. Africa right now. From Africa right now. And access, by extension, to a $25 trillion economy. Paula was hoping desperately that the Lord would hold back the night on the representative democracy of an increasingly browner, gayer, or secular, and more informed electorate. In the video, if you watch it, you'll see black hands, black people, black praises going forth in agreement with Paula White on camera. Where did these people come from? Black folks? How did we get to a place where our people are buying into this kind of ministry and sophistry? Wait. That might not be the right question to ask. Wasn't it America's Dallas-based, West Virginia-bred megachurch pastor, also known as the religious and self-help guru Bishop T.D. Jakes, who, after all, gave us Pastor Paula White? Wasn't it Bishop T.D. Jakes who brought us this prophetess? The problem with the old church, I came up in the old church. I love the music and the dancing and the clapping and the guitar playing and the tambourines and the washboards and the bass drums and the church mothers and the lap scarves and the big hats 
with fruit bowls on top of I came up in the old church. But my problem with the old church is the old church taught us about deliverance. But they didn't teach us about struggle. In the they late 90s, when Pastor Paula White was starting to make her way up the ranks, megachurches were growing, the Christian rock industry and the Christian rap industry were actually viable careers that people could have in Christian music, all of which were undergoing massive changes as music was becoming more contemporary and churches were having to deal with how do we keep young people, how do we make it cool, how do we make it hip, and how do we still keep it Christian? Khakis and sneakers and pastors wearing jeans became chic, and that was a sign of the new church. I think it's extraordinarily important. Um, love wins, for me, is a way of understanding that God is love, and love demands freedom. You are asking for it both ways. That doesn't make sense. I'm asking. People of mixed races started attending churches with one another, and it just seemed like a really fertile time for a new way of worship, a new way of ministry, and a new way of doing church. You're not falling behind, you're in training. If it's taken longer than you thought, it's because God has something big in your future. Don't slack off. Don't get tired of doing the right thing. If you'll keep passing the test, the scripture says your due season is coming. People wanted something hip, something less structured, something less rigid than what they had grown up in. As people tried to break down racial barriers and close age gaps, words like love and love wins and everybody just coming together to get along was the attitude of the new worshipers. As a society, we had eked our way through the crack epidemic, ignored the AIDS epidemic, but got through that, I guess. And people were looking for something other than just another kente cloth, Afrocentric church service. People wanted hope, people wanted excitement, and people wanted a sense of expectancy. And he's working on my behalf. So all I'm going to do is sit back and praise the goodness of Jesus. I'm going to tell who's doing. I'm going to testify that the Lord is fixing this for me. So no traditional messaging, no pulpits, no liturgies, Super Bowl halftime production quality but an incoherent message and poorly disguised underbelly of racism. Evangelical authoritarianism, misogyny, and anti-LGBT sentiment was there all along, right beneath the surface. The question I'm asking you, what yes. you seem to be saying in this book, yeah. is that God will love, will melt everyone's heart eventually, some even post-mortem. You've just indicated, though, one of the problems with this book, which is, in a sense, you're creating a Christian message that's warm, kind, and popular for contemporary culture, but it's frankly, according to this critic, unbiblical and historically unreliable. That's true, isn't it? No, what you've done true. is you're amending the gospel, the Christian message, so that it's palatable to contemporary people who find, for example, the idea of hell and heaven very difficult to stomach. So here comes Rob Bell. He's made a Christian <laughs> gospel for you, and it's perfectly palatable. It's much easier to swallow. That's what you've done. I was there, I was part of the church business for more than 20 years, working in ministries just like this. No war against flesh and blood. We're not in a war with that. Hi to everyone. We're not in a war against flesh and blood. I came on because I care about God's creation. And every person from the LGBT and anything else, any other kind of thing that is supporting gay, I never said LGBT last night. I said S-I-N. 
and whatever falls under sin will lose preach. But while some people were busy enjoying dynamic services, feel-good sermons, or maybe singing Kirk Franklin's, it doesn't matter what color you are as long as your blood was red, white evangelicals dating back to pro-segregationist Jerry Falwell were openly gathering strength and formalizing alliances with political leaders agitating for a white supremacist worldview. Because Jesus, for Paula White and those like her, it didn't matter what color you were as long as you voted for her version of God and eventually for Trump. After all, the angels are being dispatched from Africa. Africa. The angels have even been dispatched from Africa right now. Africa right now. Africa right now. From Africa right now. They're coming here. They're coming here. The Lord says it is done. The Lord says it is done. How do you talk about Christian nationalism in America? How do you do it? Do you go back to 2016? Do you talk about African Americans and black Christians or black Muslims or just white evangelicals? How much overlap is there between ethnic groups? Do you start with the Bush administration? Uh, do you go back to the 2000s, the Reagan years, Barry Goldwater or President Eisenhower's national prayer breakfast? What is Christian nationalism? Is it the Oklahoma City bombing in 1995? The controversy over the Ground Zero Mosque in New York? 15th century Western Europe? Did it begin with the Civil War or Jim Crow? Or do you go back to the early settlers? And how do you talk about Christian nationalism, white evangelicalism, and white supremacist politics? And how does it implicate black people in America and beyond? Better yet, what do we do about it as black people? Years ago, I heard a cheeky saying that stayed with me, and it describes colonialism's after effects in religious terms. It simply says, Canada got the French, Australia got the convicts, and America got the Puritans. It's cheeky, but it might explain some things that we're going to talk about. Around 2010, I had a friend who I would talk a lot with, and we had some really good conversations about church, spirituality, politics, you name it. We would just talk and talk and talk. And he liked to pick my brain, and I liked to ask him questions. And when we would get to talking about stuff, he often said that he didn't watch the news. He just didn't like to watch the news. And he just didn't understand why people made religion so political. And I kind of understood that. News can be depressing. But he seemed to think that that was virtuous almost, that it was good to be uninformed. And he found staying in the word more fulfilling and relevant to his life and for his comforts. And in 2010 or 11 roundabout, when there was that horrible earthquake in Haiti, he asked me my opinion of that. And without going into the story, he told me that he thought that what happened in Haiti was a result of the people of Haiti losing God's covering. And that after all, 70% of Haitians are Catholic, 30% are Protestant, but 100% of them are voodoo. My friend, a black man, a black man with Caribbean roots, was telling me much like Pat Robertson was telling us on the 700 Club, that the Haitians deserved the earthquake that killed them and their family members and destroyed their homes and took their livelihoods and loved ones from them. Also, God is a good God. I am a geek. I am an admitted geek. I am a part of the society. 
particularly when it comes to learning about the Atlantic slave trade and the Iberian involvement and the interplay between Africa and trade between Europe and Bristol and England and all these different places coming into the Caribbean. And I'm partly interested in that because I am Caribbean myself. And if you study it too, you probably learned that the trade, as it were, kicked off with the Spanish in 1492. He went to the Caribbean and blah, 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 blah. But it's a lesser known fact that it was actually the Portuguese, not the Spanish, that really kicked off what was going to become the Atlantic slave trade. They were laying the groundwork up and down the west coast of Africa for 50 years or so before Columbus and the Spanish even got in on it. Now, there's a lot of dense history in that that I'm not going to get into just to keep it light. But the record is clear concerning black folks, especially in the New World, religion and politics have gone together for a long time. So it's the 15th century in Iberia, Portugal and Spain. But with Portugal, there were legal traditions uh, that regulated Christians' treatment of Jews, Muslims, and other Christians. And around 1452 and 1455, there were some issues that came up with black Gentiles, quote-unquote, and how they were treated. At the time, the Pope was Pope Nicholas V, and he issued a series of papal bulls granting Portugal the right to enslave sub-Saharan Africans. Now, this didn't have anything to do with the Spanish at the time, but don't forget, the Moors were in Spain and they probably wanted to avoid the Moors um, and anyone in those territories. So they're looking for sub-Saharan Africans at this point. The Pope and the Catholic Church issued a decree to the King of Portugal, Alfonso, and was trying to make arguments around slavery being a natural deterrent and Christianizing influence to the barbarous behavior among the pagans. Here's what they wrote. This is Pope Nicholas V. Merchants now had the right to invade, search out, capture, vanquish, and subdue all Saracens and pagans whatsoever, and to reduce their persons to perpetual slavery and to apply and appropriate to himself and his successors the kingdoms, dukedoms, counties, principalities, dominions, possessions, and goods, and to convert them to his and their use and profit. Papal Bull, 1455, Pope Nicholas V. What's the point of this? Two points. All politics are our people's relationship to power. This makes religion inherently a political act. Now, there can and should be a healthy wall between the two of them, but we shouldn't be surprised that they go together so well and that they're so easily exploited, historically speaking, up to the present day. At its core, to permit someone to tell you what to do or what not to do based on their personal perception of an incorporeal, inanimate, and vaguely comprehensible idea is to essentially empower someone else over you for no good reason. That's a political act. Talking about news, religion, and politics can be overwhelming. But whether you watch the news or not, or whether religion and politics frustrate you as a subject, it doesn't make faith apolitical. This is your host, Roger, and you're listening to Where We're Headed. We'll be right back.
If you like what you're hearing, or you're curious about these and other subjects, visit our Legacy Video Program Archive. It's online on our Black Nonbelievers YouTube channel. You can look it up at Black Nonbelievers Inc., all one word, directly. You can find every Legacy video from season one and season two there, plus much, much more. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. See you online. In the earlier segment, I mentioned America getting the Protestants. Let's just quickly recap what that really means for us today. You may have heard of the Puritans. They were not only protesting the Catholic Church, but they were also protesting the Church of England. They were a religious reform movement in 16th century England, and they felt that they had a direct covenant with God to, to make certain reforms. They were under siege from their own church and their own crown, and so some of them came here as colonial settlers. This was around the 1620s, and then later on in the 1630s, and they're protesting that once made them unified began to divide them once they were here. You may remember Tituba. This is in the play and in the movie The Crucible. And Tituba represents a real part of that division that affects black people in terms of political power using religion. She's African in some cases, and in other cases, historically, she is an indigenous Taino woman from Barbados, or in some stories, she's even an indigenous woman from South America who was trafficked as a slave and brought to Barbados. But whatever she is, she represents a kind of division between religion and politics and the way that those things affect people of African descent or indigenous backgrounds against a European religious model. Tituba is demonized and forced to confess, and her forced conversion represents, among other things, the power of state religion and the inferiority of African ways, African religion, and black women. The Puritans were separatists. Their movement goes back to the 1530s, and in the 17th century, some groups of worshipers began to separate themselves from the main body of their local church, where preaching was inadequate, and to engage an energetic lecturer, typically a young man with a fresh degree, who was a lively speaker steeped in Reformed theology. This is the tradition that was handed down in the Americas. George Whitfield comes to mind, that charismatic preacher that we still have to this day in Protestant religion. As time went on, more settlers came to colonize, and established themselves in North America, some calling themselves Puritans, some calling themselves pilgrims in later groups, some calling themselves separatists, others calling themselves non-separatist congregationalists. By the 1640s, there was an enterprise of 10,000 people in the Massachusetts Bay Colony. They soon outgrew the bounds of their original settlement and spread to what would become the rest of New England and eventually beyond New England. Stay with me now. We'll bring this full circle after the break. Are you currently on a faith journey of your own? Are you questioning, seeking to find community in a way that's outside of traditional religious institutions? Or reimagining yourself in relationship to your community and your surroundings as a formerly religious person? You're not as alone as you think you are. There are communities and people and organizations that exist to help people like you in your own journey along the way of life, in your questions, in humanism, free thought, in social justice, education, LGBTQ advocacy, scholarships, and more. You are absolutely not the only one. There are others like you, and we're organized, we're engaged, 
we're active, we're protesting, communicating, and we're trying to live healthy lives as best and ethically as we possibly can, and to have a little fun along the way. Learn more about some of these organizations, like the ones that have produced this podcast, Where We're Headed. You can find out more at AmericanHumanist.org and BlackNonBelievers.org. That's the American Humanist Association at AmericanHumanist.org. And on Facebook, search us at Black Nonbelievers of DC and Black Nonbelievers at BlackNonBelievers.org. Find us online, support today, check us out. Priest until 1978. What's up with that, Brother Wilcox? What, Brigham Young was a jerk? Members of the church were prejudiced? Maybe we're asking the wrong question. Maybe instead of saying, why did the blacks have to wait until 1978? Maybe what we should be asking is, why did the whites and other races have to wait until 1829? 1,829 years they waited. And why did the Gentiles have to wait until after the Jews? And why did everybody in the house of Israel, except the tribe of Levi, have to wait until... When you look at it like that, then instead of trying to feel like you have to figure out God's timeline, we can just be grateful. Grateful right down to our socks that the blacks received the priesthood in 78. Maybe we should just feel great. As Christians have been declining, which by the way is causing anxiety amongst those who identify as white and Christian, right? They feel their identity as under attack. Um, those of us who try to claim this country um, for the promise that it holds in terms of racial, religious diversity, for example, the more we try to claim that, the more anxiety producing and the more anxiety filled white Christian America gets and of course then that manifests in a variety of different ways including with the election of the current president but I think that what we also have to take a look at is the power of Christianity in our social structures and legal structures and how that's not going to necessarily that's going to take a long time and that's going to take some serious intentionality to um, help make more pluralistic. We plotted on a way to take the flag down. So they had erected it with this flagpole that had an internal pulley system. So the ropes are not on the outside of the pole. You can't simply walk up to it and lower the flag. Jesus must wash this land, and so we've come here to join you. To pray that your government would have wisdom to uphold righteousness in this land. Day America is losing their religious freedoms. We are restraining, trying to restrain an agenda that's going to hurt the nation and hurt knew Whoever did that role was, was very likely to be arrested. I was the only person who had a direct connection to South Carolina, and I was a black woman. And we felt very strongly that the image of a black woman in particular being the one to take the flag down would create a powerful kind of symbolic rebuke of everything that the flag represented. Example in seventh grade Bible, 
we got some sort of worksheet, as far as I recall. I think it was a supplemental sheet that was handed out. It had, you know, three sort of caricatured illustrations of Noah's three sons, right? Shem, Ham, and Japheth, with arrows pointing to what parts of the world they supposedly populated after the flood. Shem looks like a sort of stereotypical white guy. Japheth, stereotypical kind of, you know, folkloric Asian caricature. And then there's this very racist black caricature of Ham with an arrow pointing at Africa. And it doesn't actually say that this is why we had slavery in America and that was okay. But that was clearly the subtext, right? Like, we, this was clearly teaching us the curse of Ham. And as I recall, the, um, the Bible instructor seemed a little embarrassed by this worksheet himself, but he still taught it. Still taught. We have a lot of people who say that, well, the Confederate flag, you know, it's just a symbol for the South. It's not necessarily about slavery. But when you go back and you look at the actual quotes from the people who formed the Confederacy and from the person, William Thompson, who actually designed the flag, they make it very clear what it was about. William Thompson says that it is about fighting for the heaven-ordained supremacy of the white man over the inferior or colored race. When minorities of a variety, you know, whether we're talking gay and lesbian rights, we're talking racial minorities or religious minorities, when minorities try to claim something that the majority population um, has, um, especially the conservative Christians, um, have done a very good job at messaging in saying they're wanting special rights. And we first saw this with the LGBT community um, in the late, in the 80s and going into the 90s, that they want special rights. Well, no, they didn't want special rights. They wanted marriage equality. They wanted rights that heterosexuals had. That's why James is holding onto the pole the entire time I'm coming down. He was essentially like, you know, if you electrocute her, you'll have to electrocute me too. Uh, and then I also began to pray out loud and once I actually had the flag in my hand, what came to mind was the story of David and Goliath. And I said, You come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. You come against me with hatred and oppression and violence. And I come against you in the name of God. This flag comes down today. I ask you a question. I do not uh, believe in, I can't trust Obama. I, I have read about him and he's not, he's not, he's a, um, he's an Arab. He is not. No, 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 ma'am, no, ma'am. No, ma he's a, he's a, he's a decent family man, citizen that I just happen to have disagreements with on on fundamental issues, and that's what this campaign is all about. Looking low, and he's working on my behalf. So all I'm going to do is sit back and praise the goodness of Jesus. I'm going to tell who's doing it. I'm going to testify that the Lord is fixing this for me. We covered all of that so we could get to modern day nationalism. Modern day right wing Christian nationalism. For so long, we haven't wanted to talk about it. And in not wanting to talk about it, we disarm ourselves. It's a culture of silence and politeness and respectability that placates our communities, even though we're not white evangelicals, especially because we're not white evangelicals. And that's what makes Christian nationalism everybody's historical problem. Specifically, it's a thorn in the side that's complicated the long story of black freedom movement and black free thought in our communities, on one hand, creating our own institutions has given us dignity and autonomy in spaces that we might not have had before. On the other hand, it's allowed us to not be aware of other theological views that don't have our best interests at heart.
And while all evangelicals want to bring people closer to Jesus, white evangelical Christianity has formed an alliance with the far-right populism that's 50 years old and reveals a relationship that's resistant to change and actively furthering Christian dominionism as an extension of the very things that Pope Nicholas V talked about in 1455. Don't believe me? Remember the Chick-fil-A campaign in 2012 where free chicken was offered nationwide at all Chick-fil-A outlets because the evangelist and CEO Dan Cathy made some disparaging remarks about LGBTQ folks and was actively and still actively funding colonial missionary work and promoting conversion therapy for LGBT people in the United States and abroad. His evangelical alliance with other missionaries going specifically to Africa makes the concept of U.S. Christian nationalism something to be exported to Africa in large part to do what couldn't be done here in the United States, which is to keep gays at the low end of societies, or worse, to kill them. Or shall we talk about Ronald Reagan and his embrace of the leader of the once moral majority, a Christian nationalist group brought together by segregationism? in support of a presidential candidate who would begin his campaign in Philadelphia, Mississippi, in league with blatant racists and white supremacists. Before the 1970s, George Church did not care about abortion and in fact believed that life begins at breath. And while I do not think that a bunch of Jesus worshipers should have a fucking thing to say about healthcare when it's not their own bodies, at least that position was consistent with your scripture. But the minute y'all couldn't segregate a f***ing school, you needed another issue to keep maintaining your political clout. You don't think that there are any babies dying in there. You're not stupid people, but you are deceptive and dishonest. Jerry Falwell Sr., perhaps a patriarch of white Christian nationalism and white evangelical Christianity, represented the 20th century version of the union between church and state, but particularly white churches and the state. It also served as a new model for political compromise to be exploited later in the 20th century and beyond. Trumpism has never been very far from the surface of the, in the history of the Republican Party. Trump didn't bring anything inside the big GOP tent that was already there. What he did in bringing that up, in radicalizing those, uh, those emotions, this populist angst, is he showed Republicans that there's a way forward without the old model that Mike Pence represents, especially when it comes to social conservatives and evangelical Christians. Give them what they want. And that refers to a line that Donald Trump uttered to Mike Pence's chief of staff, Mark Short, about what he was going to do for evangelical Christians. He was going to give them everything they wanted because he knew that if he did, they would keep supporting him. He did that, and in the process, he obliterated model of social conservative evangelical that Mike Pence has and many others before him had represented in the Republican Party because they learned they didn't need somebody who was one of them to get what they wanted done. I'd love to get into more of this white nationalism post 9-11, but I got to mention Pastor Terry Jones. He's the one in Florida a few years ago who was determined to burn 3,000 or 2,000 Korans in protest of American Muslims and Muslims everywhere, I guess. He was the one who was visited by the Secret Service and who was compelled by the FBI and even the Department of Defense and General Petraeus at the time not to do this, but insisted on going through with burning 
these Korans because in Pastor Terry Jones's world, Muslims don't belong in the United States. Only white Christians do. At the Sunday morning service at the Dove World Outreach Center, there were fewer than 30 worshipers, a tiny congregation among the world's two billion plus Christians. But Pastor Terry Jones has led this little flock to the brink of what has become a global confrontation. In fairness, there were other Christians and particularly white Christian denominations and congregations in Florida who denounced Terry Jones at the time. But Terry Jones didn't listen. And when he was asked, is there anything that could stop you from being blasphemous in this way? Terry Jones simply said, if God sends me a message to stop, I'll stop. It's time to stand up and do what we're doing. Pastor Jones says he will go forward with his plan to burn hundreds of Korans, the holy book of more than a billion Muslims, on September 11th. As these alliances get fulfilled, we see that religious minorities, when they want representation, and yes, there is a religious gay and lesbian community of Muslims and Christians, and they too are religious minorities. In fact, most LGBT people are religious. But I digress. Religious minorities everywhere remain unprotected because white Christian nationalism gets to define who's a heretic. As someone recently said, you can follow Jesus or you can be woke, but you can't do both. understand I think as a country is that if we're talking race we're not um, race neutral and if we're talking about religion it's not religion neutral the starting point is white Christian supremacy over the years America has made compromise time and again with domestic-led terrorist groups armed with the cross and the sword and with the antipathy and contempt for black, indigenous, and other peoples of minority faiths and ethnic backgrounds. This religious impulse has been right there from almost the beginning, from baptizing Africans being packed into slave ships, praying a blessing over the voyage in the Middle Passage, permitting free blacks like Richard Allen to worship in church, but only from the balcony above, separate from white Christians below, to enveloping Confederate ideology into a Christian worldview, reflected in stained glass windows, on the National Cathedral right here in Washington, D.C., windows that only were recently changed in 2021. Now, there's a tendency to denounce white evangelicals and authoritarian Christians as fake Christians. There's also a tendency to treat stories like these in the news with kid gloves. This only downplays or serves to excuse a very dangerous form of extremism. We're all paying the price for that right now. It also serves to absolve more liberal and progressive Christians from doing the necessary work of really grappling with the ways in which they benefit from and are complicit in historical and contemporary Christian hegemony, violence, and racism. The compromises of old are no longer holding up, mainly because Christian nationalists and white evangelicals don't want compromise anymore. They're tired of settling and they want nothing less than full-on Christian theocracy. They've seen the earthly riches and they want it all right now. Not even in heaven, they want it now. So this is where we are. And after all these years of evangelical infrastructure building, people sometimes still wonder, how did this all happen? How'd we get here? 
There is a price to pay for not watching the news, for not being vigilant about how religion and politics affect everyday lives and the experiences of people all throughout this country and the world. And with all due respect, just throwing a black Jesus at the problem is not going to fix it. Because evangelicalism, that is to say biblicalism and conversionism, together or separately, tend to skew towards authoritarianism. And while white evangelicals, not to mention black and Latino evangelicals, while they're busy building the kingdom in the 2020s, white evangelicalism is perfectly happy to use us to advance a 500-year arc of white supremacist patriarchal social and economic policy in the name of God while we live out our faith. The U.S. domestic terror threat is real, and it's the highest it's ever been because of these types of acts. For those of us seeking the right hand of fellowship in Christianity in this moment in history, it's important to understand the company you keep, to know the people who are walking alongside you, to understand those going forth in your name, to dissent, and to know who's really on your side. A lot of spirit in our churches I'm not just sure whose spirit it is. And, and maybe that's why thinking is so low in our churches. You see, I think the black church is very good at producing people who can proclaim, who can preach, who can really entertain. And we have done that well. In fact, we have, I think it would be fair to say we have produced the greatest preachers in the world. That is, we have produced people who can really say the word, their word. Thank you for listening. This was all in preparation for our very, very special guest next week. Straight from the legacy program that we hosted in 2020, he's the author, the constitutional lawyer, and he's the advocate, Andrew Seidel. He's coming to talk about the founding myth, why Christian nationalism is un-American. I hope you'll join us for that conversation with myself and Andrew next week. And share this podcast with someone in your network. Like, subscribe, and follow us. Give us a review, and we'll see you soon. I hear the sound of victory. 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 I hear the sound of victory.